It's June 8th, 2014. Our message is lock, stock, and barrel. Oh, come on now. I, I get excited about Jesus, and occasionally I even get excited about firearms. That's not what the message is about. But that, that saying came into being because the major components of firearms when they were built were a flintlock, something that you could get some spark into, uh, a stock, something you could hold on to, and a barrel, something you could take aim with. And it's come down in the English language to not have to do with firearms at all. It's when you've embraced the wholeness of something, the completeness of something. It's another way to say I'm all in. You say, oh, he's got my heart, lock, stock, and barrel. If you are a fisherman in the house of God this morning, you might say he's got me hook, line, and sinker. Amen? The three major components to catching a fish. If none of that makes sense to you and you like to read archaic English, you might say, he's got the whole kit in caboodle. And I have no idea really what that means other than a kit. A kit was a soldier's backpack and the caboodle was apparently the group and the group finances, the effort to be able to accomplish something. When we're talking about the Word of God, I want you to understand that we live in a day when people like to take select segments of it and pretend to have all of it. We don't need a representative democracy in regard to our scriptural understanding. We don't need three scriptures to summarize the entire Bible and then sacrifice the knowledge of the Bible claiming that we have it in only three scriptures. I want to embrace the whole thing. Lock, stock, and barrel. The whole kit and caboodle, he's got me hook, line, and sinker. I want to talk to you about the Word of God for a minute. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Say when we get to uh, the first chapter, somebody say, Hey, Pastor, I'm there. Wow, y'all are fast. And uh, here comes the 18th verse. But as surely as God is faithful. Come on, say it out loud. He's faithful. Our message to you is not yes and no. God's not double-minded. He, he doesn't change his mind. If he says it, then you can believe it. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy. How many people preached the word to the Corinthians? Oh, the, the early church was never a one-man show. It was, it was never about a singular personality. It was always about the generations of the righteous that were being raised up. In the name of Jesus, there were three people special to the Corinthian church here. I'm very pleased that God is adding to this pastoral staff. I'm very pleased to see so many of you full of the Holy Ghost, competent to teach and correct and rebuke and train in righteousness. The Lord's going to add disciples to this group and He's going to add disciples because there are men and women who are fit to disciple people in here. And he wants the faith to be an entire lifestyle. He wants that. And it's happening in the name of Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Oh, I love our King. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 
In Jesus, we see the manner in which God will fulfill every promise. Where is your healing? It's in Jesus. Where are your finances? They're in Jesus. Where is your hope of holiness? It is found in Jesus. Where is the power of God unto salvation? It is found in Jesus. It is all in Jesus. Jesus is supreme in all. And so through him, the amen, that's so be it unto God, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Look at your neighbor, say, I'm going to stand firm. How about you? (laughs) Paul didn't just have confidence that he was going to stand firm. He had confidence in his brother. Sometimes you might stand in a position where you have confidence in your brother, but you have a hard time having confidence in you. Other times you might be in the position where you know you're going to make it, but you're not so sure about him. In the name of Jesus, he's able to make our brother stand. This is a hope we are to hold on to. We need to not be so quick to discard, not so quick to rule out. After all, the Lord's working in your life, isn't he? So he can surely work in theirs. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You can never go wrong being led by the Holy Ghost. He is a deposit that guarantees when you obey him, you get where you're supposed to go. I don't know what your experience with Google Maps has been. I don't know what it's like if you use the Apple version, but I have experienced wrong directions. It has sent me to addresses that were not addresses and businesses that were not businesses. With Google Maps, it's a pretty good bet that if I obey it, I'll get there, but it's not a guarantee. But with the Holy Ghost, if you obey his leading, it's guaranteed. Come on, say, I guarantee it. So all we need to do is follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. Or to be simple, right? The problem is I got an awful lot more things working in me. I have the desires of the flesh working in me. This whole soulish realm that is battling somewhere between what my spirit knows is right and my body that is in rebellion. But in the name of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus Christ means his spirit will control every part of me. Yes, that's an amen moment, friends. Is that your heart? Is that your desire? If that's your heart and desire, then the power of God will make it so. And I say the best way to express your faith is with your feet. Let's show our faith by what we do. Amen. That's an anthem of this ministry because it's an anthem of the Bible. I would like to tell you that those of you who have put your trust lock, stock, and barrel in the Word of God, you don't want a part of it. You don't just want the bless me part. You don't just want the uh, I'll inherit the kingdom part. You don't just want the gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy gospel You want the whole kit and caboodle? You have a reason to trust the living God. His word is amazing. Written more than 1,500 years is the time span that it took place over. Forty different men, and maybe as many as 44 different men, wrote this word. They came from every walk of life that men could come from. 
kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. A guy like Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. But Peter, a lowly fisherman, probably a high school dropout. Amos was a herdsman. He probably smelled like sheep, same way a pastor is supposed to. <laughs> Joshua, a military general. I'm talking about I bet he had a barrel chest, broad shoulders. And when his glance turned towards you, I bet you knew he meant business. These men had different personalities. Luke, a doctor. Next time you go to a doctor and you think you can't share a healing testimony with him, you think you can't share the holy word of God with him because of his education and his lab coat, well, you can ask the Bartlett's about it, and then you can read the book of Luke and remember God's been working through the medical community so long, he chose one of them to write the fourth gospel or third gospel. Daniel was a prime minister. That doesn't mean much to us in America, the word prime minister, but if you were in the United Kingdom, it would mean everything. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, the Jewish rabbi, and dare I say, maybe even lawyer. Do you know that members of the jury that gave us a unanimous verdict are writing to us? They want us to know that God moved on their heart in our favor. Can I tell you the attorney that represented us is downloading our messages. Every difficult thing that could happen to you in your life is meant for one reason and one reason only. It is so that the glory of God can be displayed. And if we get half a crack at that judge, who knows, he may yet dance and speak in other tongues. When you think about the Bible, it's important to remember that has been read by and published in more languages than any other book. You know, in this day, if a man publishes a book, even if it's a fictional account of a historical event, people treat it like fact. Dan Brown can write ridiculous fiction, and people are pretty darn sure that it must be true because it's in print. You know, the Bible has been more widely circulated than any book in history. 30 years ago, three decades ago, 72 million Bibles every single day, I'm sorry, every single year were distributed around the world. And we've done more every year since then for the last 30 years. I don't even know what we're up to now. That's more than 8,000 copies every hour, 200,000 every day and night. And it's never been proven factually inaccurate. You have a reason for confidence in your scripture. While we were driving, moving the Sutherlands, a debate broke out as to how the cannon was formed, right? I'm not speaking about lock, stock, and barrel. I'm talking the holy cannon of God. It is a cannon. It's aimed at the enemy. But cannon in this sense means collection of the holy scripture. Without getting into those things today, if you didn't know anything other than the impact it's had on the world, it ought to tell you something about the character of God. It is good to know that when you think of its ancient accounts, there's more manuscript evidence from the New Testament period 
than all other classical literature combined. You can take 10 of the most classical works and they don't even come close. There's in existence today 5,300 copies of the Greek New Testament from the New Testament period. Altogether in existence today, there's more than 24,000 portions of the New Testament. It said that you could actually just take the letters that Christians were writing to each other that were not Scripture but contained quotes from the Scripture just in the first 150 years and reconstruct the entire New Testament from their quotes alone. How much do you love the Word of God? When you think of some of the other ancient works, Brother Sutherland mentioned the Iliad yesterday in the car. It is the second most attested to of the ancient works. None of the copies in existence date to within 800 years of its writing, and there's only 643 of them, many of which have significant differences in their manuscripts. And nobody questions that Homer wrote it. Can you say that there's a double standard? I don't want there to be a double standard in our heart. The biggest testimony that I could offer you today is what has happened in the hearts of average and ordinary people like Jennifer and I like Matthew and Cassidy, like Charlie and Joe, like Steve and Dee Dee, like Wade and Christy, and just like you. The Holy Word of God has been entering into the darkness of men's heart and separating light from darkness and bringing order out of chaos since the moment it was introduced to the world. Can somebody say amen? amen. Turn with me to Psalm 19. In Psalms 19, we're going to pick up in the seventh verse. Say there when you were there. Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you've been taught that the law was simply a restriction, it was put on you to weigh you down, to show you that you don't measure up, and to hold you captive, you have missed something. It revives the soul. The law has many facets, but you cannot ignore that one of them is it revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Do you struggle with your self-esteem in here today? Do you think yourself less intelligent than your neighbors? The Word of God will make a simple man wise. It'll give you the actual intellect of God because you are reading His words. And as they penetrate your heart and mind, His words become your words. Oh, friends, the great miracle of the New Testament is that the Word of God tabernacled among us. The Word of God literally became flesh among us when His Word inhabits you and you carry it out. In a sense, it's tabernacling today among us. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. That's better than Xanax. That's better than Prozac. That's better than whatever else you might take. The Word of God will give joy to your heart. You say, I'm sad. I don't know. Get in your Bible. Read what God says about you. It is a game changer, a life changer. Dare I say a world changer. Some of my brothers would say the Word of God is off the chain. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You feel like life is constantly catching you by surprise? You're being slapped in the face everywhere you go? 
the Word of God will give light to your eyes. He will actually let you borrow His sight, whether it's discerning between spirits that you need or simply looking into the secrets of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit of God reveals secrets. Daniel called him the revealer of mysteries. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. You won't find a statement in this book that is not right, not refined, not tasty, not wonderful, not filling. It is all good. It revives the soul, makes wise, gives joy, and gives spiritual eyesight. Who wouldn't want that? If I had a pill for $29.99 that I sold on late night television that did these things, I wouldn't need a money back guarantee. The whole world would buy it. But because God has so freely given us His Word, it was not free for the man who gave it. It was not free for the Christ who died for it. But because He gave it to us free, we often take it for granted. Don't excerpt the Word of God. Don't redact it. Don't believe that because you can quote the Roman road to salvation, you have mastered the deep truths of the faith. Spend your life studying it. Love it. Grow in it. It will change you, it will change your family, and it will change the nation that you live in. Are you sad when you look outside and see the hours growing dark? The Word of God is what our nation needs. Are you sad when you see the disjointed nature of many of our families? What we need is the Word of God. Are you sad when you look at maybe your own behavior from day to day? What we need is the Word of God. It's not a secret, and it's not that hard to do. Maybe he's made it too easy for us. If you had to climb a mountain in Tibet to get it, you'd value it when you got it. Don't despise the Word of God because it was given to you without cost to you. It came at great cost to the men who gave it. They were burned on their printing presses. They were enchained. They were enslaved. This book is a bloody witness to a murder when it comes down to it. And if it cost you your life, you would love it. And those of us that do love it, it has cost us our lives. Come on, church. Come on now. In the name of Jesus, the Word of God is what we need. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus in the Torah for a minute. We're going somewhere with our message, but I'm going to brag on the Word of God for a little bit. Jesus is the star of it everywhere you go. When we look at the first five books of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, we could say that Christ is the seed of the woman. He's the one who is going to crush the head of the enemy. He's the one that despite all man's sinfulness and all the devil's attacks, nobody could stop. He showed up in the Virgin Mary in the first century, but he was promised in the first decade to a woman, and he was not stopped. By the time you get to Exodus 12 and verse 3, he is our Passover lamb. He is the very power of God to cause death to pass over you. By the time you get to Leviticus 17 and verse 11, he's our atoning sacrifice. Does it mean something to you to know that the blood of one who is innocent has been exchanged for you, though you're not innocent? This ought to command our attention, not because it's a preacher's rhetoric, not because it's an intellectually accepted fact in North American Christendom, but because it's an exchange of his blood for yours. Amen. 
It's a very personal thing. It's not high intellectual academic knowledge. It is a very personal thing. If my best friend was killed in my place, that's an act that would never leave me day or night. Jesus is my best friend and he was killed in my place. In Numbers 20 and verse 8, also in verse 11, he's the smitten rock. The first time he would be stricken and something life-giving would gush out of him. The second time he was to be spoken to only. The king of kings will never be stricken again. He is the Lord of glory. And don't think he's going to take another beating. He was sacrificed once and for all. And when he returns, his very word will reshape the globe. By the time you get to Deuteronomy 18, 18, you could say he is the faithful prophet Moses spoke of. Moses told the people of God that one would be raised up who was like him. All of Israel was looking for that prophet and never did one arise until the man Jesus walked in to Galilee. And they saw one who was not only like Moses, he was full of grace as he was full of truth. Isn't that how the Gospel of John describes him? By the time you get to the second major division of the Bible, the writings in the Bible, in Psalm 150 and verse 6, he's called the praise of Israel. In Proverbs 8 and 22, he's called the very wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes 12 and 11... He's the great teacher. And maybe, maybe the old-time favorite hymn in Song of Songs, the fifth chapter and tenth verse, he's the fairest of 10,000. Do you love the king? Is he the fairest of 10,000 to you or is he simply one box checked in your life full of many boxes? Jesus is either supreme or is some kind of mystical dream out there that one day you hope to fulfill. I hope today he's invaded every part of you and you could say with songs of Solomon that he is the fairest of 10,000 things to you. Do you value your bass boat? Do you value your job? Like Abraham, do you value your one and only son, the one that you love? If any of these things rival the way that you value Jesus Christ, then you are missing parts of the Word of God. He is supreme in all things, the fairest of ten thousands. By the time you get to the third major division of the Bible, the prophets, we find in Isaiah 53, 11, that He is the suffering servant. Oh, my goodness. The king of the nation and the nation itself have suffered untold atrocities to bring us the truth of God. That ought to cause us to value it. In Jeremiah 31, 31, he's the maker of a new covenant. Nothing was wrong with the first one other than we were incapable of keeping it. So he made a new one that involved changing our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. That involved circumcising our hearts so that we could hear with our ears and see with our eyes. In the name of Jesus... We should keep these covenants. By the time you moved on from Jeremiah to Lamentations, you see he's a man of sorrows so that you would not have to be a man of sorrows. In the second chapter of Lamentations, he said, 
The prophecies of our oracles have proven false. They have failed to ward off captivity. Jesus Christ did not fail in his mission so that there would never have to be a day where a man like Jeremiah wept over the judgment on God's people. When the judgment comes, it's to wash away the wicked, not the righteous. I don't want you to be a man acquainted with sorrows. I want you to be a man who is acquainted with the King of Kings. He's taken your sorrows so that you can have his joy. By the time you get to Ezekiel 37 and 10, he is the very breath that was spoken of 10 times in 14 verses that entered the dry bones. He's the resurrecting power of God. As you moved on from Ezekiel to a book like Daniel, he is so clearly portrayed in Daniel 9.25 as the coming Messiah. So then in the law, we see Jesus is the perfect sacrifice in our place. In the writings, he's the heavenly revelation meant to guide us. In the prophets, he's the restorer of all the earth. And that begins with each one of us. Leo Tolstoy said, everyone dreams of changing the world. No one begins with changing himself. The gospel is dependent upon you personally taking the whole counsel of the Word of God as a personal revelation from God to you. And to the extent it can be seen in your life, people around you will be saved by its message. When it can't be seen in our lives, we have a representative selection meant to display all. Then we are a mere replica of what God intended us to be, something that lived, moved, and breathed, and walked in His image. Do you want to settle for less than the best? Oh, in the name of Jesus, I want it all lock, stock, and barrel. Amen. Jesus in the first five books of the New Testament. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the servant of the Lord. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he's the son of God. And in Acts, Christ the ascended Lord. Maybe the best and final statement about Jesus can be found in Acts 9. I'm sorry, in Revelation 19, 16. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I love King Jesus. Do you love him? I love King Jesus. He's the king of all kings. But to show my love for him, he first has to be king of me. When we say king of me, we mean king of me, lock, stock, and barrel. The whole kit and caboodle, He's got me hook, line, and sinker. As long as he doesn't have all of me, I don't have all of him. Now, how sad would it be if we go on to find out in the book of Matthew, which is where we're going, that he bought all of your craziness, he bought all of your nastiness, because he wanted all of you, and then we only embrace parts of him. Somebody say, I want all of Jesus. Do you know him like I know him? Do you love him like I love him? Is your relationship with him more vibrant than your relationship with your spouse? Your spouse is supposed to be a reflection of the way that you love him. In fact, when you stand at a wedding and you see a groom go knock-kneed, like we're soon to see Treaster go knock-kneed when he watches Ella walk down the aisle, That's supposed to be how our hearts receive Jesus in worship. And I felt something of that today. It reminded me of the day I saw my honey 
When they opened those doors and she came walking and her train filled the room. Now, it's a mixed metaphor, friends. You are the bride and he is the groom. But this speaks of his desire to see you walk in the holiness and radiance and counsel of the word of God. He loves you. Do you love him? You have trouble containing yourself when you talk about it. When you find two people that are in love somehow or another, everything that they talk about relates to their love for each other. It might even be a little sickening. But when it's about Jesus, like C.S. Lewis said, he colors everything I see the way the sun colors the earth. It's impossible. He said he didn't set out to write allegories about Christ. He set out to write and Christ filled his, filled his allegories. Do you love him? I love him. Do you know him? This is a good question today. Do you know about him or do you know him? Do you know of him or do you know him? Do you know a few facts about him or do you love him with the kind of love he has for you? Turn with me to Matthew 13. What is called the Torah? What is called the Pentateuch? The books of Moses, the first five books. You can put your finger in Matthew 13. And I want to talk to you about the book of Matthew. The Bible is a contiguous book. In other words, Genesis, the first book, is connected to Revelation, the 66th book. The 39 books of the Older Testament are a foundational floor that the 27 books of the New Testament sit upon. You can no more divorce the second layer from the first than you could the first from the second. They're an integral, integrated book. And when we exert parts of it and we simply say, this is all I need to know, you've mistaken when you say something like, this sums up the law and the prophets and you think that is the entire summary. Jesus was not abolishing the law when he said something like that. He was simply explaining it so that you could find the point in it. He was not exempting you from reading it. Matthew wanted to connect. The Holy Spirit in Matthew wanted to connect the New Testament to the Old. He wanted us to understand the integrated design. So the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy would be echoed in five divisions in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, while keeping your finger in Matthew 13, we need to know that the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5 and ends in chapter 7, corresponds to Genesis. You can find that in statements like Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This echoes the call of Abraham. You say, how? Well, because they both have to do with the origin of the called of God. They both have to do with how you identify who it is on the planet that is walking with God, who is called a friend of God. The Beatitudes describe what would later be called the family of Abraham. By the time you get to the 10th chapter of Matthew we see a section that you could call a commissioning. The 10th chapter of Matthew corresponds to Exodus. Both are about the redemption of God's nation, the redemption of God's people. This is evidenced in scriptures like Matthew 10, 7 through 8. Go preach the kingdom is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. 
that echoes what you see in a deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Throwing off slavery, throwing off oppression, throwing off the yoke of their former master. So in Genesis, we see the first mark of Matthew. In Exodus, we see the second section that could be identified in Matthew. By the time you get to Matthew 13, we're going to study kingdom parables today. All of these kingdom parables correspond to the book of Leviticus. They both are about the sanctification of God's people, God's nation. You can find that evidenced in a noble soil that has fought off weeds, that has dug out rocks, that has got completely embedded so it could bear good fruit. You can find that in wheat that survived the weeds. You can find that in yeast that filled the whole earth. You can find that in the Levitical priesthood that were distinct from all God's people on the earth, sanctified and set apart for Him. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, we mostly see the dealing of community. This is interesting because it corresponds to numbers. It corresponds to the time when God's people were dwelling in a desert, but led by His Spirit, following a new way, a new path, and a new direction. Matthew 18 Verse 15 speaks, and Matthew 18, verse 12, speak of things like, if your brother sins against you, this is how I want you to handle it. And if there is a lost sheep, this is your attitude towards the lost sheep. This is how God's people deal with each other in community. By the time you get to the fifth division of Matthew, you can find it in the 24th and the 25th chapter. It's an amazing section. It has to do with inheritance. And it deals with the same subject matter that the book of Deuteronomy does. They're both about transition from this world into the land that God has promised in the kingdom that He has promised. This is evidenced throughout the Olivet Discourse. When we talk about the coming of the Lord and what it will be like, it's evidence in the separation of the sheep and goats. It's evidence in all of the parables of Matthew 25 in the same way that the last couple paragraphs of Deuteronomy speak of the coming of Joshua who is filled with the Spirit of God leading them into a promised land. Matthew was trying in a very integrated way as led by the Holy Ghost. He probably didn't have to try very hard. It was in his DNA, literally. Matthew, a Jew, one of God's chosen people, what came out of him when the Holy Ghost moved in him to write was something very similar to what Moses brought down off of a mountain from God for a people that formed a nation. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. They would have seen in it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they would have seen it as a not new revelation as much as the continued revelation in the same manner as what Moses received. It is a contiguous book. Why would I share all of those things with you? Because when you want to understand Matthew 13, like I hope we'll understand it today, Leviticus is the backdrop. It's the backdrop because every parable was spoken in Matthew 13 to people who were already called of God. And I'm speaking today to people who are called of God. And when we apply the audience correctly and we look at the setting correctly, it helps us get the interpretation correctly. One more time before we get to Matthew 13. Let us keep our finger there and read Psalm 135. 
This will finish the background so that we can get into the text for today. Are you all still with me? Sometimes we simply preach salvation. Other times it sounds like Bible school in salvation. Many of you in here have even outgrown your pastor. Some of you are just beginning your growth and yet the Holy Ghost is able to meet all of our needs. I pray that you're able to hear in these words what God is trying to speak to you. Are you in Psalm 135? Here comes verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Suffice it to say, from Psalm 135, we find a clear relationship between those who make and practice idolatry and the idols that they make. The idols had eyes but couldn't see. The idols had ears but couldn't hear. The idols may be fashioned to look like something, but they were a poor, miserable replica of a deity. Now let us look at Matthew 13. Pick up with me in the 11th verse. Say there when you were there. He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he, he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Let me ask you in its Jewish context, what was blinding the people? Was God trying to trick them or deceive them, or had they chosen idolatrous ways? When we raise up for ourselves competitors to the Word of God, when we raise up for ourselves loves other than Christ, when we raise up for ourselves competing interests, we are dulling our eyes. We are deafening our ears. And we are callousing our hearts. So some men will see one thing in the Scripture, and yet others will see something much, much more in the Scripture. The Scripture has always spoken two messages. Those that were calloused in their heart could only receive the most surface understandings. But those who had removed by the power of the Holy Ghost idolatry from their life, they could see life and understand in the words of Jesus, even the most difficult words of Jesus, something that would change them forever. In this room today, we will likely have the same two groups of people. This is how the world has been divided, those who hear and those who understand. As a computer tech once told me, Eric, I can explain this to you, but I can't understand it for you. I forgave him. He was a Christian brother. And he was being humorous, albeit somewhat condescending. 
Have you ever read Jesus' words and you were like, I don't know why you told this to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And I might have walked away too. But there was a group of men that said, you have the very words of life. Where would we go? They heard something more in it. They knew there was something in it uniquely for them. Something that said, I'm going to have to devour all of the word of God the same way. We had to devour all of the lamb. None of it could be left till morning. Every bite was to be cherished because it came at great cost. Do you love the word of God? Do you want it all? There was a rock song in the 80s, I want it all and I want it now. Our God causes you to hungry, causes you to get hungry, Deuteronomy 8 says, so that he can then satisfy that hunger. This was a method of teaching that said, Listen, I'm teaching you that you don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from my mouth. Every time you ask God to give you a revelation and you press into that revelation and then you see its effects in your life, it causes you to want another revelation. Those that never get any revelation don't know what they're missing, so they don't crave any more revelation. They're satisfied to hear what can be spoon-fed from a stage. But you're not to be like that, church. You're a kingdom of priests. You're fulfilling the great commission, going forth and making disciples, not just of your neighbors, but of every nation. We want to embrace the whole counsel of the Word of God. We want to excel in the things of God and live lives that are worthy of the high call of God on our lives. So we are not among those that want a minimalist salvation. Never again do we want to hear the words in the house of God that I would be happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of God as long as I made it in. Shame on the man that shoots for the minimum. I want to astonish the king of kings. I want him to be proud. And when I read the seven parables of Matthew 13, I begin to see how that can happen. Do you want to read them with me? Now that we're in Matthew 13, skip to the 52nd verse. Before we read the seven parables of Matthew 13, we're going to cheat. Have you ever looked at somebody's thesis and you read the first paragraph and the last page to figure out what it was about so you didn't have to read the 600 pages in between that proved it? I don't know why. Because I'm a pastor, people like to give me things to read. I have the same question always. Have you read what you're giving me to read? The answer is usually no, but I wanted you to read it first. No, it is not my job to vet all of your material. That is the Holy Ghost job. There's too many of you. There's a growing number of pastors. You give them to Matthew and Wade. (laughs) They're smarter, better looking, more anointed than I am anyway. You can give me the one with the big coloring diagrams in it. That's about my speed. Listen. We can find out in this discourse in Matthew 13 by the 52nd verse what the previous seven parables were about. In the 52nd verse it says, He said to them, Therefore every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. He is about to instruct us about the kingdom of God. It will be like receiving a treasure, both old and new. Do you like new treasure? Do you like old treasure? It's all treasure, isn't it? One thing treasure has in common, it's treasured. (laughs) It's costly. 
It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Whether somebody found it out 4,000 years ago or four days ago, if it came from the heavens, it's beautiful. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to God, but the things are revealed to us and our children's children forever. You were meant to be a storehouse of God's treasure. That's how the kingdom would work. You would devour His Word and He would reveal to you His truth. We might sit and debate the great meanings of the Scripture. And maybe you argue your point well. We can sit and debate what an apple tastes like, what a green apple tastes like, what a red apple tastes like, what a Granny Smith apple tastes like, or any other hybrid. But you will never know what it tastes like to me. It's an intensely personal thing. Are you having a personal interaction with the Word of God? Or have you been satisfied by platform speeches? Have you ever heard a politician speak from a platform and everything that he says is true in the sense that it would be great if they did it and it was terrible and not true in the sense that you know he's just saying it and it will never be done? What, did y'all fall asleep? Tell me you've heard a politician do that. If all we hear is what is spoon-fed to us from up here, it's little better than political speeches. It's when it becomes a reality in our life and an ongoing feeding in our life that this whole thing begins to change. Don't settle for what I know about the Christ. I love what I... I love the way that I taste apples. I think they're amazing. I love the way they taste to me. But that's, that's my experience. I can only tell you about it. You need to taste it for yourself, not just take my word about it. Oh, have you dug in the Word of God? Have you tasted and seen the kingdom? Because when you've tasted of the age to come, you long for it. You yearn for it. It might even make you go, I know the doctor said that my kids got celiac disease, but I've tasted of the kingdom and I've knocked down giants before and watched it. I'm still carrying the head of the last giant and I'm ready to cut off this one. You might receive a word that you have a cancerous tumor and you say, I will knock this down like I have every other. Or you may even go, you know what? I've had to fight with this one longer than I wanted, but I'm not beaten yet. There are so many jewels in the Word of God. And in Matthew 13, we're going to examine seven special parables The less familiar ones I will examine more, the more familiar ones we will examine less because my goal here is to give you a sample of something so that you will want to go buy the whole keg. Sorry, religious people. Once you develop a taste for something, you don't care whether other people like it or don't like it. You now have a taste for it, and I feel that way about the Word of God. We start... Matthew 13, speaking of what your Bible probably calls the parable of the sower, and I believe is a misnomer and misnamed. I would call it the parable of the soils. The sower is the same in every case. He's God and he's sowing the word of God. The soils are what are unique. You're probably fairly familiar with this, so let me say that in the 19th verse, we have seed that fell upon a path. The path was hard. The seed did not penetrate the hardness of the soil. Birds of the air came and took it away. 
And you can say that the kingdom did not take root in this field at all. By the time you get to the 20th and 21st verse, we have seed that fell on the rocks. One thing about rocky ground is it often has pockets of soil in it. This is both wonderful because the soil is rich in nutrients and it's terrible because the soil conceals the hardness of the rocks beneath it. This stands for people who have received the word of God, but they have no root and they last only a short time. In the 22nd verse, you run into seed that fell among thorns. There was sufficient soil, there were sufficient roots, but they had such competing interest in their life, the deceitfulness of wealth, cares and worries of this life, those kinds of things choked it out and it was not fruitful. If we're people like those in the book of Leviticus that are called to be separated and sanctified, called to be a priesthood for the Lord, called to be set apart, we, like Adam, have that same job. We are to be gardeners of the soil of our hearts. We have to make sure that our heart is not too hard for the Word to penetrate. We have to make sure that we have sufficiently packed our heart with the kind of soil that is receptive to the Word of God and that we're in for the long haul, not an experimental test. We have to make sure that we don't have competing interests growing up next to it. Because in the 23rd verse, we find what happens when the soil is noble. When the soil is noble, a seed goes in, but a harvest comes out. Let me ask you while we skim over the top of this parable. There's two fields that we're going to discuss today. One is the field that is your life, and the other is the field that is the world. There's two levels to all of these parables. One that is for the immediate audience then that would hear and receive the secrets of the kingdom. Others for those that would hear the words but not understand its more personal, secret meaning. Let's ask about you in the world first. Are you a seed in the world that is producing a harvest? Can you legitimately say 30, 60, and 100 fold is what you're bearing in the world around you? You were meant to affect this world. God put you here to affect this world, to fill it with His presence, to multiply His presence. None of us are exempt. This would be the first way to look at this. The second would be, in my own life, the revelation that has hit my heart, did it bounce right off? Did, did it take root but only for a little while, and then because it rained, I gave up on the ministry he gave me. Did it grow for a while, but somewhere along the way, worries? You know, last week, there were a couple moments, the, maybe it was week before, the P. Rose and I, we didn't quite have, well, we didn't have groceries. Do you know that the Holy Ghost moved through the members of the body, and even some not in this local body, and now we got groceries to spare. We ate red meat yesterday, and I loved it. The Word of God will provide everything that you need, but there are things that can grow up alongside it and begin to choke it. You can worry about what people think around you. 
We all say we don't and we all do. You can worry about what happens to me if I obey God. All of these things do one thing. They choke your fruitfulness. It's trying to choke you out just like an MMA fighter wrapping himself around your neck like an anaconda or Gabriel Stevens in a swimming pool. <laughs> Choked me unconscious in the water. A boy's tough. But if you will work the soil of your heart, if you will let the Word of God penetrate even the parts where it hurts... He's able to bring out of you 30 times what went into you. He's able to bring out of you 60 times what went into you, 100 times. In fact, the truth is he can do immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine. I think I would have been voted least likely to be saved in my high school class. Wade later became principal of the very high school that I was nearly thrown out of. Matthew got to watch the whole thing and prayed me into the kingdom while that was happening. I think at best the seed of lordship hit me. That if he was not lord of all, he was not lord at all. In some kind of way that exploded in my being. It began to take over my DNA to where it controlled my every thought. And he's gotten out of me a whole lot more than that one seed that started it all. This is what the kingdom looks like. Which takes us to another parable. Perhaps we could look at the parable of the weeds. Start with me in verse 37, and we will read down through about 40. Are you there? He answered. By the way, you love when parables are explained. He didn't explain them to everyone. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for those sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. A man sowed good seed into his field, but an enemy also sowed seed. We find out that the way that you identify a tree... It's by its work product, what it produces in life. This is very much in line with the Hebrew concept of bar. When a Hebrew has a bar mitzvah, he's becoming a son of the commands. This is only true if the commands define his life. You're a son in Hebrew of the one with whom you have the most association. Act like the most. So if you act like the devil, Jesus didn't hesitate to say you were a son of the devil. But neither did the first chapter of John, somewhere around the 12th verse, hesitate to say that you could become a son of God simply by believing on Jesus. When we believe Him, we begin to act like Him. This parable, in its most basic sense, is teaching us very much that although the world is God's, He will weed right out of the world those who will not act like God. On a very personal level, we all stand in the world and this is our field. How will you be identified? Does your belief produce in you a changed character, changed actions? Has it consumed your life or is it simply there to fend off inquirers about the condition of your soul? We've received enough 
weak, dead stuff to inoculate us from the real thing. These parables had two levels of meaning. I imagine some sat out there and wondered, is he trying to weed me out of the world? And others sat there and went, what is he trying to weed out of the soil of my heart so that I'm not declared a weed? And both are true. He's going to weed some out of the world and he is still helping me weed my heart out. The word of God could be seen as weed and feed in that sense. It's meant to feed the nourishing revelations of God and it is meant to kill that which is competing with the word of God. Oh, amen and amen. This takes us to the little bitty mustard seed and the 31st verse. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest, somebody say smallest. smallest. Say it again. Smallest. Come on, Larissa, say it louder. Smallest. smallest of all your seeds. Yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. The kingdom of God may have started in the heart of a first century Jew. But it is enveloping the earth. The kingdom of God is as small as a mustard seed when it enters your life. It might be a single revelation like it was in mine. But it eventually grows to produce something that benefits all around you. Providing shade, a place to land. Come on, do you ever needed a safe place to land? When I was still a pretty troubled teen. In love with the living God but had no idea what it was you remember when that man took our deposit on the car? I'm not supposed to say his name. Sorry. I put a $500 deposit on an $1,100 car. Does that sound right to you? But I did. And I thought in those days, because I had been 18 for just a few months, I could go uh, straight to the bank and they loan people money because I'd never not paid back money because I'd never borrowed money. I didn't know that no credit was worse than bad credit. I didn't know that. And so I went straight to the bank and I said, Selena, you don't have any credit. You, you, can't, you can't borrow the money. And uh, I went, oh, how do I get it? Uh, we went through a brief informational session there. I left, went straight back to the man's house, knocked on the store and said, I'm so sorry. I thought I could borrow the money. I've never done this before. And, uh, and I can't. Um, it's been about an hour. Could I get that deposit back so that you can sell it to whoever you want. He said, uh, son, the, posi- the, de- the deposit's non-refundable. Well, 32 or three days earlier, if somebody had taken $500 from me, there would have been an all-out um, assault of some kind. And I stood there and I trembled. And inexplicably, I began to cry. It's because it was one of the first times in my life that my flesh wanted to do something that my spirit said that I couldn't do. And lordship of Jesus Christ was at stake in that moment. And trembling, I walked away. And by the time I got home, the man's wife, God had used the man's wife, say amen, wives. Keep condemnation on him and he called and he drove the money to me. God will do a better job for you than you would ever do for yourself. Sometimes the kingdom is as small as the seed of revelation that says you can't do to somebody else what you wouldn't want God to do to you. Sometimes it's that small, but it has far lasting dramatic impacts in your life. So when thinking of the mustard seed principle, what could you possibly glean from it? The kingdom is small, but it expands and has benefits to everyone. 
What is your impact on the world around you? Are you consuming? Are you contributing? Do you have something to give back? Because God has given you something that is supposed to multiply. Let us move to the yeast. This would be verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount. Somebody say large amount. A flower until it worked all through the dough. The deposit is tiny compared to the whole. But it will grow until it has consumed all. Sometimes the rock cut out of the mountain is as small as a man's hand. But it invades the whole earth. Friends, this ought, to dis- not, this ought to keep you from being discouraged when you say, well, I don't know whether I'm where I should be yet. Let's look at what he has already done in you and say it's growing. Oh, what do you have to do to get it to grow? Do you got to kill some idols? Do you, you got to pull up some weeds? Do you have to deepen some soil? Do you have to soften some soil? But it will grow. It's what it does by nature. A brother came to me last week and he had some flattering, kind things to say to me and immediately it turned negatively towards him. He said, I don't know whether, you know, I'm where I should be and, and I, he was comparing himself with me. And, and that can't be done. I, I don't compare very well when compared with Matthew. He's dark and lovely. <laughs> he sings like an angel. Have you seen how far the guy can throw a football? He can throw football like 70 yards. I can't catch one that was thrown at me from three yards. You know what you're compared to? The growth of the kingdom in you. And when I thought about the man who was speaking to me, I couldn't think of a single year I'd known him when he was not advancing. He was growing every year. When we look at these parables, we need to put them in their perspective. Was every priest in the book of Leviticus with which this can correspond, were they the same? Or did we have a high priest? Did we have have Levitical priests that worked in shifts in the temple, but also Levites that did not work in the temple? Did we have musicians in the temple that didn't handle sacrifices? Did we have Levites that carried things in the temple, but were not the one who wore the high priest? Ephod. Priests differed from priests, but if they did their job, the kingdom was growing in them. What we find in these parables is the nature of the kingdom in the world and the nature of the kingdom in you. So let me ask you, are you growing in your Christian witness in the world? And is the Christian witness inside of you growing? Can you say that it consumes all? Can you say that it permeates all? That it's in all, to all, and through all. Because there should be no area of our hearts and lives that His hand is not touching. This takes us to the treasure. Say treasure. What was Matthew 13 about? Well, it was about treasure. It was about the kingdom's treasure. And it could be likened unto the book of Leviticus. Kingdom treasure. Start in verse 44 with me. The kingdom of heaven... Is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Oh, my. Jen probably had no idea when she married me just what all was in that field. Y'all remember when we took over the field back there? 
I found the telephone pole in that field. I didn't know it when we walked back there. I almost tripped on it, the weeds were so high. I found a pallet of broken tile in that field. I found a dead animal in the field. I found a colony of living rabbits until I let Judah's dog go for a while. And a certain elder in the church. I had no idea what was in the field. Do you know what I wanted in the field? Something I could live in. I wanted something somebody in the church could live in. Where are you at, Mario and Alicia? Do you like living there? We had no idea what was in the field, but we got the whole field when we got the house. Sometimes when you get married, Miss Jen probably got an awful lot in the field that was not the house. You know, my feet smell. I also, I can be so gruff. I know that surprises you. I feel really strongly about things, even when they're not important to other people. I don't know how to dial it up and down. It just is. I bet, I bet when she envisioned giving her life to me and my life to her, I bet she was not thinking of embracing all of those things. And yet she loved me enough to take all of that with the good that she desired. That's a very poor shadow of the way your king loves you. He bought the whole field. Can you be a little crazy sometimes? Can you get a little off base sometimes? And you're pretty sure he wants to throw you away because of something he discovered in your field. But he bought the whole field. Do you think he didn't know what you were when he bought you? Oh, my goodness. He knew what you were, and he still bought the field because he saw something in it that he valued. I believe in the theological concept of total depravity, but I also think it fails to acknowledge that he knew what he could do with you. He bought the whole field. You're pretty sure he wants to discard you because you didn't do right in some area, but the kingdom's not like that. The kingdom's like a man who bought the whole field just to get this out of it. But we learn from the mustard seed we learn from the yeast that if he gets that little thing out of the center of the field, it will eventually take over the whole field, didn't we? Oh, church, if you got eyes to see, you would know that 1 Timothy 4.10 says that he is the Savior of all men. Is that on the screen there? God, who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Is Jesus Christ Lord of the world? Yes. Do they receive him as Lord of the world? No. But there is a treasure in the field that is the world, those who have received him. Because some reject, do you think he shied away from the cross? Not at all. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. That was the treasure in the field. Somebody say amen. amen. How about this? On a very personal level, micro, not macro. Do you think that he found out about some of your junk, some of your funkiness, your spiritual underwear left on the floor for the third day in a row, the towel that you refuse to hang back up on the rack, the milk that you perpetually leave out in the kitchen? 
the dog that shows up at your neighbor's door at night and scratches on it just to let them know that you are irresponsible and don't keep your animal in the yard. When he finds some treasure, I'm sorry, when he finds some trash in your field, do you think it surprised him? What was your condition when he bought you? Could we look at Romans 5 and verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He was staring at the trash in the field and he still decided to buy it. Are you beyond hope? Not in his eyes. Maybe you need to see through his eyes. Have you gotten discouraged along the way? Is something choking out your faith? Have you decided there's too much trash in your field for God to see any treasure? Guys, he does not give up on you so easily. He paid far too high of a price for you. You know, Matthew and I have had a couple Ford pickup trucks that we had a hard time letting go of. We put blood, sweat, and tears. Then we sacrificed our pride and brought them to professionals who put blood, sweat, and tears. It was so hard to auction those things off. You know why? We had put so much into them. It's almost like the worse they ran, the more we valued them because we didn't want to give up. So the day we got it to run from here to the place we could sell it, we did. Church, if we feel that way about our work projects and you are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus, why would you think he's ready to give up on you? Did anybody receive a prophecy at the altar today? Anybody receive a touch from God during the worship service today? Is he not perpetually, constantly trying to encourage us? Let us not be like those who heard the flute and would not dance. Let us not be those that cannot be encouraged in the things of God. Let us exalt the word of God even above our own emotions. Somebody say amen for that. That's a good word. Let me cover the pearl with you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had to buy it. What did it cost Jesus to buy you? Now we focus on the pearl. But what's a pearl come out of? Oh, you bunch of oysters, you. Is an oyster pretty? Anybody desire an oyster for anything other than a means to eat horseradish off of? They're slimy. And we, we say they're good for food, but nobody chews them. You know, you swallow it whole just not to taste it. And if you have to deep fry it to eat it, it doesn't really count as a tasty food. You like that it's fried. You don't like it. What could we be learning? He gave his all for us. He didn't sell some of what he had. He didn't sell three quarters of what he had. He sold all of what he had for him. He was after you lock, stock, and barrel. You had his heart hook, line, and sinker. But then that begs a whole other question, doesn't it? Does he have all of you? Hook, line, and sinker. Lock, stock, and barrel. Are you selective in what you give to him, what you let him see, what you talk to him about? The kingdom of God is like those 
that received all from their king and gave all to their king. And I'm not sure it really qualifies for kingdom when that's not what we're doing. Our last one might be the hardest. Verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. Somebody say all kinds. The kingdom takes all kinds. It takes pretty ones. It takes bucktooth ones. It takes chubby ones and skinny ones. It takes black ones, white ones, yellow ones, red ones. It takes all kinds. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, there's a day the kingdom will be full. The fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, just like wheat in barns. But the bad they threw away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Separate the sheep from the goats. It's almost like when Brother Alex taught on the wedding invitation, he was on to something. It's not enough to be tangled up in the net. When pulled to shore, you have to be found to have the character of God working in you. If this scares you, it should. I mean, it really, really should. The book of Philippians tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the book of Romans also tells us His Spirit will testify with our spirit. We are the sons of God. So how is it that you stand secure when you are yielded to His Spirit, walking in obedience to Him? Romans 8, 14 says, As many as are sons of God are those who are led. As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Church, what is the Holy Spirit leading you to do? Before we move to a place where we're going to close, we don't do nights, we don't do easy, we don't do little sermonettes here. We need to, need to have a moment of serious examination. So I was reflecting on a story that a friend told me from Louisiana. And pastors are like fishermen. Their stories grow over time. You know, Say, there were this many saved. Are we counting heads or are we counting hands? Or are we counting fingers and toes? (laughs) You don't know whether we're speaking evangelistically or evangelistically. But at the same time, this seemed to be a story from his congregation. Said that there were two women that met at a play date. And while they were sitting, one woman was beaming with confidence. She had on her hand, I'm sorry, in her hand, flowers from her lover, her husband. Boy, doesn't that feel good? This made the other woman go, hmm, I don't remember the last time my husband bought me flowers. They talked for a while. Next week or next month, maybe, they show up at a play date. This time the woman doesn't have flowers. She's got new jewelry. Again, this causes the first woman sitting with her to feel inferior. I don't know if my husband... I I mean, he, he hadn't bought me jewelry. And boy, the other woman was beaming with confidence. So loved. They didn't see each other for some time. 
And the next time they pulled up for the play date, woman was sitting in a Mercedes that her husband had bought her, but she was in tears. And the woman who had always felt inferior said, what's wrong? She goes, well, my husband bought me this car. Why are you crying? It's beautiful. It's an amazing Mercedes. I found out that he brought me flowers because he felt guilty he had been flirting with his secretary. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, you haven't heard the best. I found out he brought me the rings because he felt guilty they had become physical. And when he dropped off the Mercedes, it was because he was leaving me for her. The woman went home, the other woman, and thanked her husband who said, Sweetheart, I may not get you flowers every day. I hadn't got you jewelry lately, and I hope one day to buy you the car you deserve. But every day, I put my hands on you, and I pray for you. And I pray for the life that God has for us. And I sacrifice of myself that you might walk the life that God had. He put you in the park to minister to the woman who had everything. Even though you don't have anything, don't you have what you need? And when I heard the pastor tell that story, and it's been a few years now, couldn't help but wonder what it would be like if we had been talking to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to send him flowers to assuage your guilt that's built up this week. He doesn't want you to flirt with the world six days a week and then come in on the seventh day and drop an offering in the offering so that you can buy his affection. He certainly doesn't want you to fund some missions trip somewhere because all along your heart has left him and you just want to feel better about it. The king is not interested in what the world would call good works for the sake of good works. Acts of righteousness are those things that you trusted him for and did because you loved him. They may be less impressive to the world than cars and jewelry and flowers, but to the king, it's the treasure in the field he was always looking for. And he's had to look past an awful lot in our lives just to see those come forward. And you know what? He's willing. Could we put Mark 8.34 on the screen? You know, to you that's just a story, but to me I know the people. And here's the difference between the two women's husbands. In Mark 8.34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. One woman's husband didn't deny himself anything, but he claimed to love her just the same until, of course, he loved someone else as much as he loved her. The other woman's husband denied himself at every turn for the benefit of the one that he loved. How do you show your love to the king? It might be as simple as turning off a television and getting on your knees, not because God hates TV, but because he values he values when you turn away from something in favor of him. It shows you love him. When you set aside your plan for his plan, it shows that you're being saved by him and that you esteem his ways better than your ways. I don't want to talk to you about flowers. I wanted to talk to you about the five books of Moses. When you see the book of Genesis, you need to know 
that in Hebrew there is no such word as Genesis. It's Bereshith. And it's the first three words of the Bible in the beginning. And this is to remind us that from the beginning God created all men to be in fellowship with Him. He wants you to be in communion with Him. This is why Matthew included the Sermon on the Mount. It's why the book of Genesis exists. It's to say, from the beginning, he was looking for you. Have you responded to that call? The book of Exodus is not a Hebrew word. The Hebrews call that book Shemot. It means these are the names. It reminds us that he knew the name of every person that went into slavery in Egypt, and in his name, his Hashem, is where we find redemption. Do you find it interesting that in the book of Matthew, in the 10th chapter, in the very same book that Matthew intended to correspond with Shemot or Exodus, he names the men who were following him and says, Go out. And preach the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Go get my treasure. Leviticus. There's no such word in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's weigra. It means, and the Lord called. And the Lord called. It reminds us that the Lord is calling us to be sanctified. Just like he called the Levitical priesthood to stand apart. And in Matthew 13, the section of Matthew that corresponds to Leviticus. In the kingdom parables, we find out what he's calling you to do. He is calling you to work the soil of your heart. He is calling you to accept something that may seem small in the beginning but grows to encompass all. He's calling you to give your all because he gave his all to get you. He's calling you to have a reform of everything in your life by way of his spirit so when you are pulled upon his kingdom shores, you are a keeper. The book of Numbers has no such title in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's Bemidbar. means in the wilderness. <laughs> it reminds us that when we were following our own direction, it inevitably left us in the wilderness. But now we were a new community being led by God. He wants to provide direction for his community. The section of Matthew 18 that corresponds to the book of Numbers, Bay Midbar, teaches us how to have direction in a community of believers. It says that we don't have a choice. We must forgive one another. It says how we make decisions. It says what our attitude should be like to our brothers out there. The living God is trying to provide direction. The question is, will we be led by Him as His community? And the book of Deuteronomy is called Devarim. These are the words. Guys, he has given us his words that he's coming, that we are transitioning from this kingdom into his kingdom. The section of Matthew 24 through 25 teaches of the separation at the coming of the Son of God. And the book of Deuteronomy teaches 
that when Joshua showed up full of the Spirit, it was time to lay waste to the enemy and inherit the land. Will you be full of his Spirit? Will you inherit the land? We have seven parables that call to us, that urge us. You have a seed of the kingdom in you? Has the kingdom been expanding in its territory in your life? Where are the strongholds? See, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity not just before you leave here. That's a preacher's rhetorical device. You have an opportunity every day you wake up to say, Today, Lord, you get a little more of me. I'd have given it to you yesterday, but I didn't know it existed until I was minding your word and I realized this is undiscovered territory. But I want you to have it. You say, you don't understand, Eric. Very often when I'm reading the word, what I find is not treasure from the heavenlies. It's trash in here. He bought that too. Give it to him. You weren't meant to keep it. And if you hang on to it, you can't hang on to him. He gave all and requires you to give all. Could you stand to your feet?